This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Dominic Smith, author of the novel The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, a New York Times bestseller and a New York Times book review editor's choice selection. Smith has written three other novels and also teaches fiction. The last painting of Sarah DeVos tells the story of DeVos, a 17th century female painter, the man who owns her painting in New York in the 1950s, and the female forger who copied it after it was stolen off the man's wall. We began by discussing the genesis of the plot. This has had like a weird kind of genesis because I lived in Amsterdam about 15 years ago, and I don't think I necessarily knew it at the time, but the, the seed of this novel really took root. Um, so during that year, I spent kind of a fair amount of time in museums. And at some point, I discovered the story of um, really the the women painters of the Dutch Golden Age. And I don't think I really even knew there were any women painters. I certainly hadn't seen any. So, um, you know, in my mind, the Dutch Golden Age looked like Rembrandt and Vermeer. And so to discover that there were all these missing layers of the golden age. And in fact, I think the number that stayed with me was that there were some 50,000 painters at work uh, in the Netherlands in the 17th century. So, you know, as a, as a writer, I'm always squirreling things away in notebooks. And so many years later, I knew I wanted to write a, a book about painters and actually had at least one or two failed attempts to write about a different group of painters in a different age and kind of threw up my hands in despair. And when I went back to some of those notebooks and I just got really intrigued, not only with the story of the women painters and the idea that Sarah van Valbergen, the very first woman in, in to be admitted to a guild, uh, none of her work has survived. So there was that. And then the idea of kind of creating a painting, a landscape that would be the center of the novel and have these different stories that orbit around it. And that's kind of when the novel as it is now really, really came into shape. So is art a big part of your life? I mean, were you, have you always been interested in art? I think I've always been interested in art. I mean, I started my university studies in architecture um, and I was always drawn to visual art in, in high school but I really, before this novel project, I, I knew very little about art. Um, and uh, so I was kind of an outsider. And, and my undergrad degree is in anthropology. And so I've, I often approach novel writing a little bit as an anthropologist. So I knew that there were people out there who knew everything there was to know about certain things within the world of this book. So it was a matter of tracking them down and seeing if they'd be willing to talk to me. Um, so yeah, I was a total novice really in the art world when it came to this book. And so tell me about how, um, some of these characters emerged. Basically you've structured the book into three time periods, although in two of the time periods, it's basically the same characters. So your main characters are the Sarah, the woman who painted the painting in the 1600s, and then Ellie, who turns out to be a forger, and Marty, who was the owner of the painting that got stolen. The the two characters that first came into focus were Sarah DeVos, who is a kind of an amalgamation of some details of two real historical painters. So Judith Leister, who was one of the first women to be admitted to a guild of St. Luke, the main painter's guild, 
in the 17th century. Uh, and this this woman, who's really a, a kind of a ghost or a cipher in art history, Sarah Van Belbergen. So I used some of their details to create her. I, I, I knew I wanted to span time, and I needed a character who was a counterpoint to Sarah DeVos. And in many ways, Ellie Shipley, um, you know, I see her as, uh, you know, she does forge this iconic painting. Uh, and I think the circumstances under which she forges it are complicated. And so I want her, I wanted her character to be uh, very much someone who is a little bit adrift, very talented, very passionate about uh, her work, about the world of painting restoration and art history. But somehow her moral compass is, is skewed. And when it comes to copying this work, and initially I think she deludes herself into thinking of it as a copy, she does it out of love, weirdly. And, and so I think my, you know, my approach to her as a character was to find a way to try to make it convincing that you know, the forgery is not some calculating mercenary act. It's actually a kind of weird devotion to the idea of who Sarah DeVos was as a painter. Um, and, and so, uh, and then the mighty de Groot character, the, the, you know, the wealthy lawyer who inherits it, um, he came late in the game. And, and I realized that one of the things this book is interested in is the way that there's always been in the art world, a divide between the people who create art, uh, the people who sell art and the people who buy art. And, um, I wanted a character who was really in the world of uh, consumption, of consuming art. And so he kind of slowly fell into place. And then those kind of three characters and their storylines orbit the painting. So that's kind of how they came about. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dominic Smith, author of the novel, The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. It's interesting talking about the consuming of art because he, although you had, um, as he grew and he did end up consuming art, but he inherited art. And do you think there's a difference between people who inherit art and the way that they look at it? I think so. I mean, I think that we all create personal narratives with art, whatever is on your walls, um, or in your garden or wherever, uh, we create a personal narrative. And so I think if you inherit a storied painting, uh, you know, and this painting's been in his bloodline for, you know, over three centuries, you have a a strong attachment to it. Uh, Your sense of identity is kind of bound up in it. And you've created a sense of what that painting means to you and to your life. And I think you you very much uh, inject yourself into that into that painting. So I think it's uh, the longer you've had it, the more it's been in your family. Uh, in many ways, I think it's the more symbolic that the art becomes. Yeah, it's like not even the art itself sometimes. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I've been thinking about this through the course of the novel, I mean, wh- where where does meaning derive in art? And I think that really it is the act of looking at art and creating the personal meaning uh, that is the thing that really matters. Uh, what's interesting in the book is that each of these three characters have entirely different meanings associated with the painting. Uh, what it means to Sarah DeVos when she paints this landscape of this you know, forlorn girl watching skaters on a frozen river, 
uh, and in her in her loss uh, is entirely different than what it means to Marty de Groot and entirely different than what it means to uh, to Ellie. And so really, it's not that any one of them, including Spirit of Oz, is right <laughs> in terms of what it means. It's it's the meaning is uh, personal. And I think that's that's the part of art that really, uh, in addition to the physical medium, it's the part that really endures and that, uh, you know, captivates people. One thing that I find really interesting that I, you know, really think about a lot from this book, but I'm also just curious about in general is is forgery and that it's a whole it's a whole you know, market out there of forgery. When a painting is forged and it's hanging on your wall and you find out you feel duped, but if you didn't know that whole time and that painting brought you pleasure, Mm -hmm. it's so much about maybe status or feeling Mm -hmm. authenticated. Tell me your thoughts about forgery. Um, So forgery, I think, is is fascinating for all kinds of reasons. I think what you're describing is, 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 is spot on because... Uh, one of the reasons we respond so viscerally to the idea of a forgery is that um, we do create these very personal narratives with art. And so to discover that it is a fake, uh, we feel, you know, duped. It's almost like we've fallen in love with an imposter, and that's a theme that's pretty uh, front and center in in the novel. Um the thing that was a real revelation to me in this book about forgery was really the the narrative side of forgery and and um you know there's the technical side of of forging paintings and every forger has to uh develop those skills and those techniques um but there's also a whole set of kind of narrative devices that are really just designed to suspend disbelief in in the viewer or the buyer uh, and I think a great, you know, there's so many good examples of this, but the, the guy whose book heavily informed my approach to forgery was this guy named Ken Perini, uh, who I think now probably you could say that he's in the business of creating authentic fakes, <laughs> meaning he creates paintings in the style of a famous painter, but he doesn't try to sell them as forgeries. But for many years, he forged lots of paintings, sold them in auction houses, uh, in his book, and to some extent through a kind of brief email exchange through the writing of this book, he kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, you can use little devices like, you know, putting blue chalk marks on the back of a painting and then rubbing them out by hand to suggest a previous auction sale. Uh, you, you might write a numbered lot. Uh, and, and psychologically, the buyer, it's just one little piece of data but if you do a handful of little tricks like that, uh, if you create, you know, artificial fly droppings on some of the pigments, um, that might suggest it's been languishing in an attic uh, for, for decades. And so people infer meaning from that, and it, it makes the provenance of the, of the forgery much more interesting. And as soon as you can create a story around it, people are going to be uh, engaged with it in a slightly less rational way. Uh, and that's the, that is the part of forgery that really fascinated me um, and kind of drew me to that more, less, less as an art crime and more as a, a kind of covert form of storytelling. 
And and it's interesting to think about the energy that some of these artworks have because basically the Marty who owns this painting uh, before it gets stolen from his house kind of felt like he had all this bad luck. And then when it was gone and it was replaced with a fake, which he didn't notice right away, his luck kind of changed. Mm-hmm. What do you think that was about for him? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a it's a question that I'm interested in, in the book. I mean, I, I think there's a couple nods to, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray and the idea of a painting having some kind of supernatural power. I mean, it's very much this is a very much a, a realistic piece of fiction, but but I think that there we're capable of magical thinking when it comes to artwork. Um both in terms of what it means objectively and also what it almost the power it might have over a room or a house or our lives. And I think the longer you've lived with an artwork, you develop a kind of superstition about that. Um, and, and in fact, memories are often correlated with artwork. Like, well, you know, I know in my, like I remember the kinds of uh, Kandinsky prints that were on my wall uh, as a college student, you know, and now it almost seems like a cliche, a kind of like, oh, you know, that seems so trite or something. But at the time, uh, it was a real discovery and kind of profound. So we we do create these um, meanings, and I think they kind of they hang over us a little bit. And and so with Mighty, I wanted him to really inject a lot of power into that painting and and grapple with the the sting and um the indignity in his mind of having it stolen uh from above his bed i wanted that but i also wanted him to flirt with the idea that actually the fact that it's gone has only improved his life and and then he's wrestling with those two different uh pulls and yet what he does is basically something that turns to be so out of character for his life um, to try to get it back. So once it was stolen and he recognized that, he hired a private investigator mm-hmm. and they they traced who could have stolen it and, and forged it to this woman, Ellie. And mm-hmm. Marty then befriends her under a false name and basically hires her as an art consultant for him because he basically says he wants to acquire more paintings and they form a relationship. Is that a forged relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this book has two forgeries in it. One is a moral forgery and that's what you're describing. Um, And one is a technical forgery. And, and you could argue that, um, you know, the technical forgery happens actually for weirdly all kinds of good, right reasons. Uh, and the moral forgery, which on the surface is like, well, this guy has had this thing stolen and he wants to get it back. But uh, it eats away at the kind of structure of his life and it decays a lot uh, in his life. And, and um, you know, it really it transforms him as a person that he does that. And I think he gives into the possession side of art. And, um, you know, so he, he ultimately wants a kind of revenge and, and he, he doesn't, uh, the idea that he's been outwitted, uh, is, is kind of really galling to him. And so this is a, a, a revenge that I think brings out his, um, you know, basest 
uh, self. Um, and there's all kinds of influences and, and motivations there. As you talked to this forger and you were exploring the life of forgers through your fictional characters, why do you think it is that forgers end up copying other people's work instead of doing their own? Yeah, so, I mean, it was mainly Ken Perini's book that I think speaks to this. Um, I think what I read in that book is what you often see in, in a forger's account or memoir or manifesto. There's a kind of anger and it's usually, uh, you know, these are very technically capable um, artists who, for whatever reason, their prevailing aesthetic doesn't resonate with their peers, um, or they uh, they're just they're not quite able to articulate a vision in their work, and I think they end up being thwarted, and and they often turn to forgery as a kind of outlet or a compulsion. Um, there was a really interesting, uh, article recently in the New Yorker a couple, maybe a year ago on Mike Landis, this, this contemporary forger who's fascinating because he doesn't try to sell his work. Um, he donates it <laughs> to museums. And, uh, when, when he goes and meets with a curator, uh, he'll often go, um, you know, he'll have his engraving or whatever it is, and he'll go dressed as a priest or he'll have a whole story about, you know, an aristocratic dead sister or whatever, how he came by this, this artwork. And I think um, in that case, it's, it's a kind of compulsion. Uh, I don't think he can stop. There's something very satisfying about the idea of duping people and having this maybe neglected or shunned expertise uh, trick people into thinking that actually, you know what, that is by uh, someone famous, and you need to you need to uh, take account of that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dominic Smith, author of the novel The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. It's interesting because the women in the book end up being very betrayed by the men that are closest to them. Um, going back to Sarah, she was one of the first women in the guild. Her husband mounted all this debt on the family and just left her with it. One of the reasons that he had this debt was he was selling paint paintings out of sort of guild rules. Can you mm -hmm. talk about what it means to be in a guild and what kind of mm -hmm. rules they were? Because I wasn't sure. familiar with that. Yeah. So guilds, you know, the Guild of St. Luke, uh, there was an equivalent of this in, in many European countries. It was kind of the academy in Italy. But in, in the Netherlands, uh, the Guild of St. Luke was the main um, painter's guild, but also various kinds of artisans. Uh, who could be a member changed over time. Uh, sometimes it included house painters and engravers and chair painters and all kinds of people, many of whom made a living by the brush. Um, and it, on one level, it was like a labor union. So basically, they represented the rights and the privileges of professional painters. They created uh, a, an apprenticeship system. Uh, it was very structured in terms of how you would uh, become a master of the guild. You really had to go through an apprenticeship to an existing master. It was expensive to do that. Uh, 
so it was it was very um very organized and then there was another component of it which is that uh the cities so there was usually a guild of saint luke in each major city so there was one in say harlem and amsterdam and leiden um and they were often charged uh taxes by the city uh on behalf of their members so you know for example the one in amsterdam paid a tax every year uh, to the uh, Chamber of Orphans. And the city thought, well, we'll tax this guild and other guilds, and, and that'll help pay for the services that we provide to, to orphans. Um, and consequently, the guilds became very kind of paternalistic to their members. And not only were there the privileges of being a member, there were all kinds of obligations, financial uh, if someone, you know, died who was in the guild, there was a whole set of uh, protocols around the funeral, uh, how the widow would be treated if there was a widow and the children. Um, and so it was expensive. And they really, uh, one of the things they did is they tried to prevent works, cheaply created works from coming outside of the Netherlands and flooding the market. And the big fear in the 1630s was uh, Antwerp and that all these painters would just send their product over the border and people would buy it and they would undercut the prices set by the guild. Um, so it was very interesting. This is a time, too, in, in the Netherlands when it was a golden age, not just in terms of how prodigious painters were, but also uh, just the sheer uh, volume. And you could go into a butcher shop, you could go into a fish shop, and you would see floor-to-ceiling paintings. And these were not generally expensive paintings, but, uh, you know, you could buy a painting for, um, you know, 10 guilders or so, and you could also buy a painting for the, the price of a house. And so the guild tried to control this whole market and really set the rules around which uh, paintings could be bought, sold, signed, created. They tried to lock up the whole thing. When you did describe the painting in, in the beginning of the book, did you go off another painting? Was it all out of your imagination? It was. It is a fictional painting. I think it's inspired by uh, this painter named Henrik Averkamp. And, and most of the winter scenes we've seen of the Dutch Golden Age are usually Averkamp's. And he was an interesting guy because he was... Um, allegedly both deaf and mute and he lived in this pretty remote part of of the netherlands um what's really different about my painting and his it, like his are very paradoxical so on the one hand they're beautifully serene brooding uh the skies are amazing there's almost always uh, people skating on a frozen lake or river or canal uh what he does, though, is he shows the, an entire cross-section of society kind of out on the ice. So he'll show aristocratic-looking people being pulled along in a sled, and then he'll show, like, a peasant uh, doing his business in an outhouse, and, like, there's a missing board on the outhouse building, and we can see exactly what's going on in there. There's a kind of uh, humanity in those paintings that that's always struck me. And even though there's sometimes there's these little bawdy motifs going on, um, they're all, they've always been really beautiful to me and really like captured something. And so when I when I I knew I wanted to create a winter scene, 
I knew I wanted it to be very uh, still and hushed, uh, but also a little bit haunting. And I think that's where I, you know, departed from some of Avacamp's um, style. But, you know, he was definitely an inspiration in trying to create um, that painting that opens the book. So the book is written in three time periods, about 1637, 1957, and then 2000. Was um, one of these time periods more difficult to write? In some ways, the 2000 period was just the most difficult. And and I think it's because, um, you know, the challenge when you're writing these three different historical periods is that you don't want each one to feel like a different book. And so 17th century Amsterdam shouldn't feel dense and dreamy and atmospheric when, you know, 2000 in Sydney just feels like, uh, you know, sparse and very contemporary. And so I struggled with that. And I think the challenge, you know, I grew up in Sydney. I've lived in the States for, you know, most of the last 25 years. So really to capture Sydney uh, in that moment, I had to rediscover the city myself. And, And weirdly, I not only, you know, had trips back there to do that, but I actually read about the city where I'd lived for 18 years or 16 years or so, um, trying to see it through a new lens and trying to find a way to capture some of its essence. Um, and I think that that was much more difficult in some ways than, um, than 17th century Amsterdam. In 17th century Amsterdam, there must have been a plethora of research materials you found? Was it hard to sort of weed out and find where your story was and all of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that the danger with historical research, and usually I rely on primary sources. So I'm looking at, you know, letters and journals and newspapers or gazettes or whatever exists. Uh, in later times, you often, you know, you can delve into poetry and, and novels of the time. Um, in some ways you're in search of the nouns of the period, like what people ate and what they wore, how they got around phrases. Um, but you also, I think I'm very aware of, you know, not letting that stuff overpower the narrative or the reader. And so there's a lot of that reading and collecting of those details, but then there's a lot of discarding of details. And I think you're trying to find, you know, the 10% of details about the period that genuinely fit the story, that are genuinely interesting and evocative. I think the details should do work for you. Um, And so getting to those is the tricky part. Um, Otherwise, you just kind of suffocate the reader in a whole deluge of just little factoids and and details about about the time period. So that, that part is always a tricky balance. And over the course of writing this, I don't know how long it took, maybe you can share that, but what did you learn about yourself as a writer or what what surprised you? Yeah, so this book probably took, I think, four years, somewhere between three and five years, depending on how you count it and whether the early draft that was really about a different period that I threw out counts or not. Um, So what I learned as a writer, I think, is really that those early days of excavation, of kind of writing a number of drafts that are 50 or 70 pages in and realizing that they're completely the wrong approach and that they have to be thrown out. Um, Realizing that actually I do that on every novel project three, sometimes four times before the whole project comes into focus. And I've always, I think up until this book, 
I thought it was just me and I thought it was a failure of um, my process. And I think what I've realized is that that actually just is the process of writing a novel. Um, and, you know, every time you do it, you think, oh, this project's never going to work out and you dump it and you try something else. That seems to be the way that actually I get a novel written. And so I, I'm a little more forgiving of it. And in fact, I expect it. And when it happens, I, I weirdly see it as a sign of progress <laughs> rather than uh, rather than a, a failure it, or a false start. Uh, that is just the way that particular thing works for me. And so I think that, you know, that's uh, given me maybe a little more patience uh, when it comes to trying to get a new project off the ground. And that's, you know, that's something that, that I hopefully will, will stick with me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dominic Smith, author of the novel, The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. Can you talk about and read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer, maybe something that influenced you? So I want to read the very opening uh, passage of James Salter's Light Years, um, and then I'll, I can talk a little bit about it. But So this is the beginning. We dash the Black River, its flats smooth as stone, not a ship, not a dinghy, not one cry of white. The water lies broken, cracked from the wind. This great estuary is wide, endless. The river is brackish, blue with the cold. It passes beneath us, blurring. The seabirds hang above it. They wheel, disappear. We flash the wide river, a dream of the past. The deeps fall behind. The bottom is paling the surface. We, we rush by the shallows, boats beached for winter, desolate piers, and on wings like the gulls soar up, turn, look back. So I came to James Salter in grad school, and I've subsequently taught him in a few different ways. Um, like for a lot of writers, Salter in this book in particular was a real revelation for me. I mean, what's interesting to me is that it's so spare. It's so impressionistic. It feels like memory. This is a book that is predominantly in third-person omniscience. But occasionally we have these shifting, fluid moments of perspective and, and tense. Uh, the use of the pronoun we... Um, is really interesting here, and it only happens a handful of times in the book. Um, there's just so much going on here that, that it, for me as a writer, was an inspiration, something that, that I really admire. And uh, I often go back to this book uh, when I just want to be reminded that, um, you know, how beautiful a sentence can be. And interestingly, this book kind of got panned by a lot of critics when it first came out. So that's also always a, an important reminder. Can you read something that you wrote, something that was maybe tricky or changed a lot from the first draft? I'll read the first time that we encounter Ellie Shipley uh, before she's going to copy this painting. Brooklyn, November 1957. A woman standing in a smock at dawn, grinding pigments and boiling up animal glue on the stovetop. It's the 1630s as far as Ellie Shipley is concerned, and canvas can only be bought at the width of a Dutch loom, a little over 54 inches. She reads by candlelight like a method actor and makes obscure errands into the supply chain that is the stock and trade for period conservators and forgers alike. Cold-pressed linseed oil that does not cloud, oil of spike and lavender, raw sienna, 
lead white that fumes for a month in a cloud of vinegar. She paints in her kitchenette where the northern light washes through her grimy windows and the view gives on to the streaming traffic of the Gowanus Expressway. She sees commuters on the city-bound buses, metal ribbons dotted with faces. She wonders sometimes whether those glazed passengers see her makeshift studio as an after-image. In their mind's eye, they see her bent over the stovetop and think she's stirring porridge instead of melting animal hide. I mean, this is a piece, uh, this is, you know, our first introduction to Ellie, and I think I probably rewrote that paragraph 20 times um, because I, I, I really wanted to find a way to immerse the reader in Ellie's world and capture two different kind of opposing things. One was a sense of devotion to the world of restoration and what turns out to be, you know, restoration as a launch pad for a copy of forgery, but also a kind of squalor in her life and a sense of living apart from the city and the world. And so it took me a while to find a way to, you know, I didn't want to start in her head, but I really wanted it to be infused with her worldview and the things that she's touching uh, every day. So um, that was a piece that kind of got a lot of reworking in the novel. Where do you write? So I have a 10 by 12 uh, writing studio in my backyard, and that's usually where I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I like to take out a kayak. I have a kayak that I take out on Ladybird Lake here in Austin, or I take my bike for a ride, or I'll binge watch something on Netflix. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So usually I, the small handful of writers, two or three writers, and they are uh, usually there's an essayist, a poet, and another novelist that, that see an early version. And how have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I think by cataloging it. <laughs> so I've always, you know, I've been sending work out for 20 years and I think uh, I've amassed a, enough of a file of rejection letters that I just kind of see it as an inherent part of, of writing. So I file it away. Uh, I, I try not to be discouraged and see it as just a natural part of, of writing. So I think that's how I deal with it. And what is your favorite word? I love the Russian word Tosca, uh, T-O-S-K-A which doesn't have a great translation in English, and Nabokov has, has talked about this. But basically the idea is like a kind of melancholia or sadness or, uh, you know, he, he, Nabokov called it a spiritual anguish. And sometimes it doesn't have any specific cause. And I think this is a great insight into lots of Russian literature. And it's just a cool-sounding cool word and a great concept that doesn't have an easy English equivalent. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Dominic Smith, author of the novel The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.